If you got a Bible this morning, we're going to be in a few different places, okay? First, we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel 16, so you can go ahead and open <clears throat> your Bible there. We've been doing an Advent series. The, ad, the word Advent means arrival of something long anticipated. And so as we've been looking at this Advent series, <clears throat> we've titled it a Holding Out for a Hero, which is kind of based on the Bonnie Tyler song back in the 80s, uh, which, you know, we got that off to a pretty crazy start, didn't we, uh, if you were here for that day. But um, I've had a few people tell me that they've enjoyed or appreciated that we're going to be, that we're going out of the Old Testament for this series. And uh, that's by design. I mean, I, I can't think of anywhere else that we could go when we're talking about approaching uh, the Christmas story. We have to really start in the Old Testament. And if you've missed any part of this, by the way, uh, you can listen to those things on Facebook or on the podcast. Uh, if you don't know where that is, you can holler at me. I'll, I'll give you a link to that. The Old Testament preached the gospel from the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament preached the gospel before the gospels did. In fact, Jesus came and preached the gospel from, guess where? The Old Testament, right? That was his Bible. Uh, it's kind of like this, and I think this is why I think it's so appropriate to look at the Old Testament when we look at this series. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of movies and TV shows. I, I watched a, a show this week that was, you know, had some, some good character development. I like the fact that you get more time with longer movies and long shows because you can sort of set up a bigger, grandiose story. And so, like, some people say, man, that movie was so long. And I'm thinking, I, if it was good, I wish it were longer because I like that with more time, you can sort of season the product to be even greater. And that's really the same thing that's true with the Old Testament. It says in many words what the New Testament would eventually beautifully summarize in few, right? But it says for, for a long time in a lot of different ways what the New Testament would then summarize. But both have immense value. We approach Advent, this season of longing, and while we look back with celebration, we examine those who looked forward with a deep soul's longing. And they longed for the king of all kings. They longed for the king of kings. And for a time, when David arrived, they were like, this has to be him. This is the guy. And so today, while we've already looked at Adam and Abraham and Moses in our first three weeks, today we're going to arrive and look at the person of David, and specifically how we see Advent and this approaching Messiah looking at David first as a figure. It begins really when we talk about the gospel, according to, you know, kind of leaning into the person of David, it really begins in Jesus' genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it was two people we were, now we're talking about, right? Abraham and then David. And you may skip over Matthew chapter one because of all those names. And what do those names even mean? Well, those two names are really important. The name of David and the name of Abraham, two that we've already now talked about today, two of them. 17 verses in the New Testament describe Jesus as the son of David. On multiple occasions, those in need of healing, when they were made aware of Jesus' presence, you know what they cried out? They cried out to the son of David. Why would they say that? They cried out to him for help. Calling him the son of David expressed their faith that he was the Messiah that was promised to come through David's lineage. Jesus even liked this name. In Revelation 22 verse 16 it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. He says, I am the root and the descendant of, guess who? David, the bright morning star. It was clearly important to Jesus that he came as a descendant of this guy. So I thought it would be fitting to see why David is such a significant piece of the gospel puzzle as we approach the season of Advent and Christmas. So 
We're going to look first at 1 Samuel 16, and then chapter 17, and then we're going to go to 2 Samuel 7 here in just a few moments. But let's begin in 1 Samuel 16 with the first thing that I want to take away today. Ways that we see David and Jesus sort of overlapping. Number one is that they are both the unimposing king. They are the unimposing king, the unassuming, the mild one, right? Mild he lay his glory by, we may say. They're a different sort of king, an unimposing king. And we see this certainly, great, exam, great examples and evidence of this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Sort of the buildup here is that God used his prophet Samuel, who we talked about a minute ago with child dedication, right? He used his prophet Samuel to reach the soon-to-be king, David. Look at chapter 16, starting in verse 1. And we're going to, by the way, jump. And you know that's not really our style. We like to go through books of the Bible, sort of expository style. But with this series, we're more topical and, and jumping around. But I think it's a good way to get a wholesome approach. So chapter 16, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, again the prophet, How long will you grieve over Saul? He was the former king. Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. And he still held the position, but he was on the way out. He tells Samuel, God does, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. That name should sound like it stands out, right? For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now we're kind of jumping forward, but the Saul experiment, who was the first king of Israel, was a failure of faith and a failure of leadership. Saul was man's appointment. He was tall and he was handsome and he had, he fit the bill, but he was man's appointment. It wasn't God's appointment. And what's happening in this passage is God's saying, your guy wasn't it, but now it's time for me to appoint my own. A Bethlehemite. That should sound familiar around Christmas time, right? So Samuel obeyed. He went to Bethlehem. He invited David's father, Jesse, and his eight sons to a special sacrifice where we know that he's about to anoint David to be the next king of Israel. Look down at verses 6 and 7. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, this is the oldest son of Jesse, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, right? This has got to be the guy. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, some Saul, you know, things there, right? Because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And what happens next is that he does the same with all of his sons, and you have this sort of stair-stepping thing that's going to happen as he looks at, what about this son? What about this son? What about this son? All the way through the sons. And it's sort of this story that's leading to a dramatic conclusion where we know that he's going to reach the least And he's going to see in the least the greatest. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. There's a movie that came out, I think in 1999, and it's called Men in Black. Are you guys familiar with this movie? Men in Black. It's hilarious and probably extremely inappropriate. It's been a long time since I've seen it. But there's, my, my parents, they used to laugh so hard at the movie Men in Black. And so we used to go to, go to Universal Studios. There was like a Men in Black ride down there. We shoot little aliens with these little chrome guns, right, these toy things. And we love the, the, the Men in Black ride down there. There's a, there's a line of back and forth in the movie Men in Black where uh, it's Tommy Lee Jones is one of the actors, the main guy. And then Will Smith is the other one, the guy that slapped Chris Rock, you know. So their boss says to Tommy Lee Jones' character, whose name is Kay, Will Smith is Jay, he says, Kay, and he says, 
about Will Smith, who's the rookie, says, give him a weapon, because they got to go out on the field. And they go into this big armory with all these nice, shiny, chrome guns, and they, big guns, I mean, big, big guns that do all these fancy things. And Kay, Tommy Lee Jones' character, walks by one and says, he grabs one off the shelf, it's this massive thing, and he goes, Series 4 deatomizer. And Will Smith says, now that's what I'm talking about. Like that. And Kay kind of pulls it to himself and says, this one's mine. And then he goes and says, the noisy cricket. And he gives him this little tiny thing with a little needle barrel on the end of it. And Will Smith makes a hilarious looking face. He says, hey, Kay, no, no, man. Come on. You get a series four deatomizer. I get a little mini cricket. And he sort of points it at Kay. And Kay goes, whoa, kid. Like that. Whoa, what are you doing? So kind of pointing the barrel at him. He says, man, I feel like I'm going to break this thing. But they take it out of the field, and they see the bad guy, the big bad bug guy, and he's starting to flee them. He's running away from them. And Will Smith takes the little noisy cricket, and he points it at him, and he shoots it, and it knocks him back into a jewelry store window, and it puts a refrigerator-sized hole in the side of a truck. <laughs> it may seem mild, but the strength is within is the point. This is David, right? He's a little noisy cricket. I mean, he's a small guy, and yet what we're going to see is that God doesn't look at the outward appearance of this guy. He sees within him a powerful punch. He sees within him a mighty character, a beautiful heart. God saw it. Samuel saw it. Men would not see it. Look at verses 12 and 13. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had, had beautiful eyes. He was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And Samuel or in the spirit of the Lord, rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. He may have seemed unimposing. He may not have fit the bill by man's expectations and standards, but God saw one that would be set apart as a mighty king. You know, the nativity scene provides similar circumstances. The God, we just got done hearing this song. The God to whom Caesar must submit, suddenly himself submitted to Caesar's decree of a census. The God who gave life to the innkeeper was denied a room to be given entry into this life. The God who deserved to rest on a throne rested in an animal's trough. The God who was the word made flesh suddenly was unable to even form a word at all. The God who depended on nothing suddenly depended on everything. He wasn't born into riches to royals. He was born into poverty and to the lower class. And yet, like David, it was not what was on the outside that set him apart, but was on the inside. He was not conceived of man. He was conceived of God. That never happened before. Save one man, Adam. Conceived of God to a virgin. He had no sin nature like you and I. He was different. He had a righteous nature, God's nature. He was Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's, I mean, what in the, who can say that, right? Jesus could. He didn't arrive celebrated by crowds of people, but instead by choirs of angels. And interesting, his only visitors that he received in that stable were those with whom he believed that he would one day most closely identify shepherds. And while the Spirit of the Lord was given to David, the Spirit of the Lord never needed to be given to Jesus because he himself was and is the Lord himself. I like this passage because it talks about the anointing of David. Right? The word for anointed, and this is just a neat detail, I think. And we, we don't read the Bible in Hebrew, we read it in English, but there's some little intricacies when you look at the original language. And one of those is that the word for Messiah 
is also the word for anointed. It's just noun versus verb. And so what's really happening here is that David is being messiahed. He's being set apart. He's being anointed as special. Now we know that Jesus was the anointed one. But in this passage, there's a verb that says that David is being given this messianic verb that's going to happen to him. He was a preview of the one to come, a mild king with a shepherd's heart. Before he was given a crown, he was given a heart for his own people. Guys, the same is true of Jesus. We will see him one day with a crown. But before he had a crown, he had a heart for people. Guys, your shepherd is a king, and your king is a shepherd. He cares for you. I mean, think about the, I mean, I love talking about Christmas because it causes to mind this amazing oxymoron, this, this paradox of the fact that the God, Chris, you brought it up beautifully, the God of all things would make himself nothing to reach you. Do you hear the love of that statement? Before Christmas is about anything, isn't it about the love of an amazing God who loves us? This is a love story. That's why I love Christmas, is that it reminds us that that verse, John 3, 16, is so profound. It's simple. We rehearse it all the time, and yet we overlook it. God so loved the world. What is at the heart of Christmas? The love of God, church. A king that didn't seek to dominate you, but to love you, to bring you to himself who cares for you. And though unimposing, how anointed or how special he was quickly became apparent. That's both true of David and would be true of Jesus. The second thing, while he's an unimposing king, again, I love that you can see both of these things true in both David and Jesus. The second thing is he's the champion king. He's the champion king. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 17, so flip over maybe. <clears throat> We're going to look at chapter 17 now. The next narrative is that young king-to-be David is given a role in the company of the current king, Saul, which is at the end of chapter 16. He's then back and forth from home to a battlefield, not as a fighter, but as a servant of the king. This battle was over an important territory. It was a contested valley that would grant easy access, sort of a military advantage, to the key hillside, countryside, which would be places like Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And so this battle in chapter 17 is very important because they lose this one, you can pretty much kiss the whole nation goodbye. This is a very important battle, and you know this battle by a different name, and that is the battle between David and Goliath. The story goes that there's two armies, the Philistine army and the army of Israel, and there's two mountains where the armies are, and there's a valley between them, and so this is sort of the battleground down here, and they're camped sort of apart from one another. Verse 4, we'll step in here. <clears throat> it says, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath, of Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now it's cubits a span. Let me just translate. He was nine feet and nine inches. The dude was a giant, right? He was a giant. Again, there's more details that come. He had 125 pounds just of his armor, okay? That's like if you were to put all four of my children on your shoulders at the same time and then grab a couple of 10-pound weights, okay? Think about the immense weight, and that's just his armor. He also had a spear. Just the head of the spear weighed 15 pounds. This dude was massive, man. He's a big guy. And these details are there for a reason. We were meant to see how imposing he was. Not unimposing, but imposing, right? Verse 4 describes him as a champion. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Goliath, I get this picture of him walking in with like a WWE championship belt and being like, I'm the champion. 
That's not what this means, okay. That doesn't, not what it means when it says that Goliath is a champion. This word literally means that he was a representative to fight between the battle lines. They sent out their champion. They sent out their guy to represent them between the battle lines, and that guy was the biggest guy. He was the best guy. He was the best fighter, and so they said, Goliath, you're going to be our champion. You go ahead, and so that's what he did. He went forward. Look at verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> he stood, Goliath did, and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come? I want to like put on a deep voice. Why have you come out? I won't do that. He, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? He's putting them down. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. Hear the confidence here. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. These are high stakes. What he's saying is, you pick your own champion, I'll be our champion, and we'll settle this right here on the battlefield. The next verses say that Saul and all of his men knew that they had absolutely no match for him. They were completely defeated, and they were petrified, terrified of what was coming. Verse 16 then says, <clears throat> for 40 days, over a month, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. David's brothers were in Saul's army, the guys that we just read about a moment ago. David was taking his brother's food. Again, he was kind of around the area. So David arrives and was visiting with his brothers when he heard something that bothered him deeply. And that's what happens in verse 23. This is really cool. It says, as he talked with them to his brothers, David and his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Goth, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. I love this, man. I'm, like I said, I'm a big fan of movies and stuff. I get this image of like, this day's different because David goes like that. And he says, excuse me, That's, this is a problem. What this guy's saying is a problem. Look at verse 26. <clears throat> and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? How about that statement? You see, David sees what no one else there sees. That Goliath's taunts, listen, Goliath's taunts are not just against Israel, but against Israel's God, and God will not be mocked. David saw something they didn't see. Is that God ain't gonna be defeated? And this guy's calling out God. He's not just calling out Israel, he's calling out our God. And this is why he, he turns and says, Hold on a second. What's to be done here? God will not be mocked. God will not be defeated. And so word gets to Saul that David's suddenly feeling a little bit brave. <laughs> I think it's funny because Saul then reminds him of their size difference. <laughs> their battle experience is a little bit different. If you ever watched boxing, this is sort of the tail of the tape. And Saul just kind of says, listen, he's got a better reach than you. He's got better armor than you. He's got better weapons than you. You're, you're a little bit outmatched. This is a grand heavyweight against a little featherweight. It's a bigger mismatch than that, he's saying. He's like, you are in trouble, brother, if you step out there. Don't be feeling brave. You're going to die. Look at verses 36 and 37. <clears throat> David says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And then this, this is so cool. Listen to this. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Listen to his reason there. It's not about shaming Israel. He says he's spoken against God. He's going to pay for that. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. I think, I just, you gotta think he's thinking, okay, have at it. It's a losing battle, but go for it, brother. David then grabs his wooden staff, a sling, and some rocks 
And then We Will Rock You by Queen probably plays over the loudspeakers. <clears throat> At least that's how I picture it in my head. <clears throat> this, it's a tense moment. It's so awesome. Look at verses 43 to 47. And the Philistine said to David, listen to this back and forth. It's so awesome to read this. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? Remember he has a staff in his hand. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me. I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Pause for just a second. That is a massive insult because to these people, it was a bigger tragedy. Not just to, dying was one thing. It was worse to die and not be given a proper burial. For you to be fed to the birds and the beast was the ultimate shame. And so what Goliath is saying is he's giving a massive intimidation to him saying, you're not just going to die here. You're going to be eternally shamed here. Then David said to the Philistine, verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear. He said, I might come with a wood, piece of wood. You come to me with a sword and a spear with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the God of, of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give to the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines. By the way, Goliath said, I'm going to give your body. No, no, David, up the ante. I'm going to give the dead bodies of you, the host of the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know, don't miss this, that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to win this thing with a sling. He says, God's going to win it by his own hand. And you know what happens next. I won't read the battle sequence, but it's pretty short. David runs at him, throws that stone, smacks him between the eyes, and that dude falls down, and David seals the deal. He goes and cuts his head off. You know, the story of David and Goliath is profound for a number of reasons. People are really attracted to this story, right? They kind of make sports movies after the same formula, is that underdog stories are awesome. They're really, they're attractive. They're neat to, to read and to understand. And so this even something our culture has latched onto, this use of the David and Goliath analogy. But here it is again. Please hear this. David saw something that is so rarely pointed out when we think of this story. Listen, there is a mismatch here, but it isn't big Goliath versus little David. It's little Goliath versus a big God. This is a massive mismatch. It's not between Goliath and David. It's between Goliath and the God of all things. That's why David has such confidence. It's not because he can wrestle bears and lions and tigers, oh my, or whatever the Wizard of Oz says. It's because he knows that God ain't going to lose. And this is a mismatch. His confidence never wavers, not because of his own power, but because God will not lose. I love verse 47. I'll read it again. That all this assembly may know, may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear. He doesn't need it. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Verse 51 then says, Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, who was on the ground, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion, their representative, was dead, they fled. When you hear this story taught, and we're going to move forward to one more story in just a moment before we end. When you hear this story taught, <clears throat> I think sometimes you hear that you're David, and Goliath are your giants, and so... God is stronger than the problems that you've got in the world, and so go get them, buddy. Simply put, that is just not what this passage means. You're not David in this story. You and me aren't, aren't the champion that goes forth and defeats the enemy. We're the cowering Israelites. 
We're the hopeless ones. This isn't a metaphor of the problems in your life that you can go and defeat. Sin and the wages of sin are our giant, and we are the hopelessly trembling people of God, broken and desperate for a champion to go out in front of us and fight the battle that we cannot. Guess who the champion is? It's Jesus. What's the enemy? It's sin, the enemy that we could never overcome left to ourselves, and Jesus steps out and says, I'll be the representative for these, and I'm going to go and take down their opponent, take down the enemy that they could never defeat on their own. And by the way, he too has crushed the head of the enemy, Genesis 3. He too saved, not with a sword and spear, but with a cross and empty grave. Why? The same reason that's stated here, that all may know, that all may know that there is a God over all things. Guys, at the heart of Christmas is a God who wants to be known, and not even just known as a baby in a manger, but as a conquering king, the champion of his people who goes forward and fights the battle that they never could. Praise Jesus. The champion who met sin on the battlefield and severed its head. Man, praise the Lord for that. We don't just have an unimposing king. We have a champion king. That's Advent, y'all. That's Christmas, right? The third thing is that we have a building king. And this is kind of where the story begins to go in different directions. <clears throat> the building king. David is going to have aspirations to build. Jesus is going to actually accomplish it. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> Should have to flip forward just a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 7. <coughs> David has been a king highly favored by this point. Again, we've skipped several chapters. He's won many battles by, by military victory. He's gained the adoration of his people. He's gained territory, including the city of David, which we know by the name of Jerusalem. Then a realization. He lives in a house made of cedar, this big fancy building. He's like, I have a nice house. And yet, this Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God that we carry around that sort of represents the, the dwelling place, the manifestation of God among his people. He says, we're carrying around the presence of God in a tent. Why do I have this big fancy house and God is being carried around in a tent is what he's thinking. And so he sort of has this aspiration that we need to do something about this. Aspirations to build God a great house to reflect the greatness of the God who would dwell in it. So it says, we got this, this tent, this tabernacle we're carrying around. Let's take the ark and let's put it in a beautiful, majestic building because that's what God is. And it sounds like a noble task, does it not? In verses four through seven in chapter seven, or in chapter seven, 2 Samuel 7, four through seven, I'll just summarize it. What God says is simply, I haven't requested a house. Why are you building one? I haven't asked for that. That's not your role. You're not gonna build that house. I haven't asked that of you. Never have. Look at verse nine. <clears throat> verse 9 says and I have been with you wherever you went and I've cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you notice he says you want to make it for me no 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 I'm not asking that of you I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth make for you a great name by the way that's the same thing that was said to Abraham we looked at two weeks ago I will make for you a great name the end of verse 11 says something neat look down at verse 11 he says, moreover, the Lord, the second part there, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I'll make you a house. Emphasis on you there. By the way, God is not talking about a building. He's not saying, David, you know what? I'm going to give you some new prime real estate. No, no. He's saying, I'm going to build you a household. You want to do something for me? No, no. I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to build you a house, a household. Look at verses 12 and 13. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die is what he's saying, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look down to verse 16, sort of reemphasizes this. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, who is the son of David? That's kind of a trick question. The person that's immediately thought of in this passage is his son Solomon. Solomon would go on to literally construct the temple. Again, this thing that represented the dwelling place of God. They took the ark and they put it in there and said, this temple is where God is. It's not until the New Testament that we see that really God is not relegated to this building, right? He is, he is everywhere at all times. And yet there's this building, this structure that represents the manifestation, the concentration of God's presence among his people. The glory of God was manifested there. But there seems to be in view here in these verses 12, 13, and 16, a king in view that Solomon would not measure up to. I mean, what kind of an earthly king has an eternal kingdom? I've never seen one, right? We just had a monarch in England that, that lasted a long time in power, did she not? And yet, not an eternal kingdom, right? No kingdom is eternal. And so there seems to be, as I said, in view here that Solomon would not measure up to what this standard is. This kingdom would be forever. Solomon's reign ended. He died just like every king before him. And the temple, by the way, that he built would be destroyed. What kind of eternal thing is that? It then was rebuilt, and it was destroyed again in A.D. 70. So if there is a son of David, an offspring of David, a future king in view, then there must also be a different sort of temple that this future king would one day construct. Guys, God does not dwell in a mere building. God came to dwell in a body. Did he not? God took up flesh, and the temple of our God is not a building made with human hands. It is the flesh of the, of the God-man. Jesus housed God himself, <clears throat> the son of David, born in Bethlehem. His skin was the temple of God. He is the actual temple of God. By the way, in Luke, or John chapter 2, when Jesus drove men of commerce, you know what I'm talking about? He, he takes over, turns over the, the tables and the money changers. He says, you guys are, are blaspheming this space. And he drives them out and he says, no, 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 this is not what this realm was designed for. But when he drove them out, he had something neat to say in John 2, 19 through 21. It says this, Jesus answered them. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But the next verse says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, Jesus was the literal temple. Whereas that building was a figurative manifestation of the dwelling place of God, Jesus was the actual Emmanuel, God with us. His body, though, would be destroyed. And that's what he's saying, right? This temple, you'll destroy it. You're going to crush it. You're going to kill this temple. And he did, right? They, were, they killed Jesus, they, they destroyed the temple that, that held the person of God. But on the third day, it would be rebuilt and resurrected, never again to be destroyed. Guys, David would not be allowed to build the temple. 
what we see in this chapter in 2 Samuel 7. He wasn't allowed to build the temple. And here's why. 1 Chronicles 22 verse 8 says, But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and waged great wars. It says, God says to David, You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. The one that would build that temple would be Solomon. Do you know what his name means? It should sound, sound something like Shalom. Peace. The guy who would build that temple's name literally means peace. A dwelling place for God would be constructed by the king of peace. David was a king of war. He was a king of war. He shed much blood to gain the territory, to gain what God would give him. But Solomon would be a king of peace. You know, one of the songs that we sing around Christmas time is Silent Night. It's a good song, right? I like the song. In fact, I think that we just heard that play just a moment ago. Silent Night is a really, really good song um, because materially speaking, that was just a regular night, was it not? The Christmas evening, it was just a random night in the middle of nowhere in Bethlehem, an unimposing night of an unimposing seemingly event, just a baby being born. Yeah, there's animals around, but there weren't big crowds. It was just a small, silent night. And so materially speaking, in the physical realm, the incarnation in the stillness of a barn manger nativity scene was silent, calm, and seamless. But please hear this, man. That was no silent night. In the spiritual realm, the incarnation is a declaration of war. It is an invasion of God into a world that is diametrically opposed to him. When you think about an invasion, do you think of peace? Do you think of quiet? Do you think of silence? No. You think of conflict and calamity. This night was silent in some regard, but it was also an invasion of God to a world at war with its maker. God declaring war, not on people, but on the sin that had destroyed them. He made war on the enemy. But unlike King David, the war that King Jesus declared was not with a sword. Can I just lay out the gospel? Please hear this, church. Jesus did not earn victory by drawing blood. He earned victory by shedding it. He came to make war, and yet he did it through the means of peace. He did it not by drawing the sword and attacking. He did it by laying down his life and shedding blood, providing the all-out assault that could never be reversed on sin. And by his wounds, we're healed. As mighty as David was, you know, and I kind of said this last week with Moses, <clears throat> as mighty as David was, he coveted and slept with a woman who wasn't his wife. He then lied about it and had the husband murdered. If you're keeping count, that's a violation of four of the Ten Commandments in one fell swoop. And that violation didn't happen without him violating several of the others before that leading up to that process. David may have been anointed. He might have been Messiah, but he was no Messiah. He was desperately in need of salvation, just like you and me. At the time, he was the king of all kings. But as great a man as he was, he was still a man. Only one king was perfect, and that's the God-man. And so what I want you to hear today is that our king came to bring victory to you. You come into this place today, and I know, listen, we come in here and we put on a smile, right? We act like things are all put together, 
I was asked by one of the, the couples earlier about uh, baby dedication. And they said, what should we wear? And I was thinking, I don't know. No one cares but you. You do whatever makes you happy. You're going to take pictures if you want to remember them. That way you should probably look that way. But you know what I thought to myself? I told them. I said, with baby dedication, we do something that we really all do every Sunday. And that's that we pretend that we have it together. You can dress nice. You can, you can put on a glow. But I know what you go home to. And it isn't perfection. It's brokenness. There's a, an evangelism presentation called the three circles of evangelism. And in that presentation, there's a circle that says brokenness in the middle. And you draw little squiggly lines away from it. When you're drawing the squiggly lines, you say, this is like trying to escape brokenness with work or with money or with things or with drugs or with pleasure seeking. And so you have all these lines that go out from brokenness. And then you say, when you're presenting that way, you say, but these are bungee cords. Because as we strive to escape the brokenness, they only snap us back in. Over-promising and yet under-delivering. And so today, I know that there are people here today that find themselves in brokenness. And they've tried to escape it through their own means. But if we're real honest with ourselves, we come into this place reminded that if David was unworthy of the favor of God, then we have no chance apart from the God doing an amazing work. The good news of Christmas, though, is that God loves us in spite of us. That he sent his son Jesus, not so that you could earn his favor, but so that he could purchase it for you. You know, next week will be Christmas morning. And we'll talk about Jesus, probably, at the Probably who we'll talk about that day. But I've been asked, you know, about worshiping that day. And it's Christmas morning, you know, you're doing the family thing. And I said, wouldn't it be weird if one of your, like, really close family or friends was having a, a birthday party and you just said, hey, I love you, but I'm just not going to go. <laughs> Guys, next week is going to be a birthday party. You can bring cake if you want to. I'm not going to complain about that. Because it's a birthday party because we're celebrating something more than a birth. We're celebrating more than a man, a baby, whatever. We're celebrating that God declared war on that which ensnared us. We're celebrating because the only reason that you can lift your head in the morning with true joy in your heart is because the God-man put sin to death.